Well, I, I was telling Terry earlier I had a lot of fun uh, thinking about what I wanted to do with this topic. I had taught on this a couple of years ago at another church, and uh, it, it, it turned out to be uh, fun then. And I, I originally thought, well, I'll just do what I did a few years ago. And I went back and looked at my notes. And every time I saw something, it would make me kind of go someplace else in my mind. So I just decided to totally scrap what I did before and do something <laughs> totally different. So we'll see how this works out today. Um, but let me begin by just sharing with you all a little bit about my story. Um, I was, um, so, you know, by the time I was an early adolescent, I was a Christian, and I was really drawn to exploring Christian teaching, uh, and, uh, or we might say in a broader sense, religion. Uh, and one of the reasons I was drawn to that is because religion or Christian teaching gives us some very specific ideas about uh, how we should live, what the meaning of life is, uh, what's wrong with people. Uh, so it answers uh, or it provided some answers uh, for what were for me big questions at that time in my life. Uh, and then when I was just before I turned 18, uh, senior in high school, I happened to take a psychology course, and I took it only because um, my best friend was going to be in there, and it sounded like an easy A, and that's what you want when you're a senior in high school. I had no idea. I, I, when I thought of psychology, I thought of rats in a maze, and that's as much of an, an idea about psychology as I had. But uh, for me, when uh, the teacher began talking psychology, it was like light bulbs were going on and I was instantly drawn to it and I made a rather uh, quick but I think good decision that I wanted to pursue uh, the study of psychology for the course of my life. And psychology, of course, also provides answers to big questions, you know, why we behave as we do, how we should behave and so forth. So for uh, a lot of years, I was drawn to these two systems that answered big questions, and they had different answers uh, to the questions. Um, and I recognized that there was some tension between those answers sometimes, uh, but mostly for me, I really didn't think about um, any connection between those two systems. Um, and um, so, whoops. The psychiatrist and priest walks into the bar. You can stop me if you've heard this one. Uh, the guy on the left is M. Scott Peck. M. Scott Peck is, uh, he, he passed away several years ago. Uh, he was a Christian psychiatrist who wrote uh, The Road Less Traveled, which was a book that was a publishing phenomenon. Uh, I was researching this uh, a bit as I was preparing this, and uh, I, I remember that for many years, The Road Less Traveled outsold every book but the Bible. Um, and I forget how many millions of copies have been sold. Um, but, you know, in the current days of Harry Potter and Fifty Shades of Grey, it's, you know, it's long since been eclipsed. Um, uh, and, and actually what I read was that Peck got paid a few thousand dollars for that book. Uh, and uh, so, you know... Apparently, he didn't get any royalties. He got paid a flat fee. Uh, but one of the things that he did was after he published this book, he hit the lecture circuit and began traveling around, and he wrote lots of other books, and he made plenty of money. Um, Richard Rohr is the guy on the right. 
Uh, Richard is a Franciscan priest, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But most of what you're going to hear today is going to be heavily influenced by these two guys who have heavily influenced me. Uh, so Peck, as I say, published The Road Less Traveled uh, and then many books after that. And he was, for me, the first person to sort of put psychology and spirituality together. And uh, interestingly enough, he was not a Christian when he wrote The Road Less Traveled, although he was clearly a spiritual seeker. He had explored uh, Sufism, which is the mystical branch of Islam. He explored Buddhism, and he finally settled on Christianity, although when he uh, was baptized, he was very careful to structure his baptism so that it was non-denominational because he, he wasn't converting to any particular denomination or uh, stripe of church. He, he, he wanted to think of himself broadly as Christian. Uh, but he was the first guy that began to talk about these things together. And, uh, of course, being a psychiatrist, he's speaking in psychological terms, but he uses a lot of spiritual themes and ideas. And uh, so I began reading him somewhere around 30 years ago, I think, and I read everything he put out, or almost everything he put out, as fast as he put it out. And so I was just kind of devouring uh, him. So, as I mentioned, after he published The Road Less Travel, he, he hit the road uh, doing lectures for the purpose of uh, promoting a book and, and other books that he did. And when he did these lectures, you know, he would typically have a question and answer period. And, uh, you know, from time to time he would be asked the question, Dr. Peck, just what is human nature? And he said that if he was in just the right kind of mood, he would respond by saying, human nature is to use the bathroom in your pants. Uh, and then he would go on to explain that, of course, uh, for the first couple of years of our lives, the most natural thing in the world for us is that if we, you know, feel the need, we just let go and let somebody else, you know, take care of the mess. Uh, and that's the most natural thing in the world, right? It's human nature. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years or so go by and our parents begin to ask of us something that is most unnatural. Uh, they begin to ask of us to sort of hold on to things, uh, wait until we get into a restroom and then take care of our business there. Most unnatural. Uh, and yet most of us, uh, most of the time, we resolve that little developmental milestone quite satisfactorily and life goes on and, you know, a little bit of time goes by and then the thing that was most unnatural that our parents ask of us is suddenly a very natural thing to do. Uh, in fact, a couple more years go by and if it should happen uh, that we have an accident, say, at four, uh, three or four or five, you know, it, it can bring tears. I mean, because the thing that once was so natural for us using the bathroom in our pants is now most unnatural. And the thing that was once upon a time most unnatural is now very natural. And so Peck would go on to deliver the, the punchline to his answer, which was the most essential characteristic of human nature is that we change, that we grow. Um, and he says that that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom even more than our opposable thumbs uh, and our giant prefrontal cortex. Um, so, I, I began to think about this question, what does it mean to grow up into a psychologically healthy adult? 
Um, and, you know, I, I, there's lots and lots of answers that we could give to that. Uh, I came up with uh, a few, and, and I want to say this is not necessarily an exhaustive list. This is my list. Uh, you know, if we asked Terry Casey to, to create a list, he would create a list, and Mike, uh, as, a, as a family and marital therapist, could, could create a list. Uh, and, and I suspect that the list that you guys as professionals would create would be similar to my list, although you might put some things on there that I didn't put. Uh, Mike and Terry's list might look different because of their different backgrounds. Uh, but these are just, uh, this is just some things that I kind of came up with and uh, part of it is because it supports the point I want to make. So uh, <laughs> when you're the presenter, you get to, you know, you get to create your own answers. Uh, but I think of psychological health in terms of, you know, meeting your own emotional and relational needs in a way that's effective, but also doesn't interfere with anybody else's ability to, uh, to meet their needs. Uh, it involves mastering the challenges of life, both those that are expected, uh, by which I mean developmental challenges, like learning to not go to the bathroom in your pants. Um, you know, once upon a time you were the center of the universe in your parents' house, and then uh, you get sent off to let's say kindergarten and you're just a member of a group and you have to behave in a certain way and you can't uh, get up and do whatever you want to whenever you want to. I mean, that is a major developmental challenge. We move through life uh, hitting these little challenges. And then also life sometimes throws at us things that we do not expect that are not part of the normal course of things. I mean, uh, a child who loses a parent would be an unexpected challenge uh, the loss of a job, the sudden and unexpected loss of a job. Uh, as I thought about that, a lot of them do involve losses, but sometimes things just happen to us um, that are not expected, and uh, we are called upon to adapt and change. And so to me, that's uh, a big part of what it means to grow psychologically to be able to handle that. One of the main points, uh, actually a quarter of the road less traveled is all about uh, this idea that life is difficult because it, pre it presents us with a series of problems which we learn to resolve through the use of disciplines. That's uh, a lot of what Scott Peck's uh, book is about. Um, and then also, to me, to be psychologically healthy means that we have self-awareness, uh, by which I mean that I am tuned into my own reactions and my own motivations. Uh, and I can respond to life situations intentionally rather than reactively or uh, just instinctively. I don't hit people when I want to hit people, for example. Um, now, uh, Henry Cloud, and if you've heard of uh, the book Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend, an excellent book, uh, Henry Cloud is a Christian psychologist, and, uh, and I also sort of thought of these four things that uh, he has uh, in his book Changes That Heal. Uh, and he, he sort of describes each of these things as necessary to grow up. Um, you know, first of all, we have to be able to bond with other people. That's really part of being a healthy person uh, is to be able to connect with others. Uh, and then we also learn that we have to, it's not all about connection and merging, but we have to have these boundaries in our life. Uh, we have to uh, be able to set boundaries for ourselves, particularly with those people who would be intrusive into our lives. Uh, but we also have to recognize that other people have boundaries too and we're not intruding in or controlling their lives either. Uh, 
Cloud says that we also go through the stage where we learn to sort out good and bad. And what I mean by that is uh, to recognize that, you know, Mike is not uh, this person who is all good, but nor is he not this person who is all bad. The same thing is true of me. Everybody uh, that you meet um, has some degree of goodness in them, and there's, all, they also have some faults. Nobody's perfect, and nobody is a demon. Um, and, uh, and so the psychologically mature person can uh, avoid the temptation to, uh, the, the word that we use in psychology is idealize people, to see them as all good and not be able to see their flaws. Uh, so I, you know, you know, to be able to say, my father was a good man, but, but he abused me, for example. Uh, somebody could say that, or, you know, no, he didn't abuse me. No, you know, I, that was just discipline. I needed that. I deserved that. We can, we can look at things realistically. Um, and then finally, um, he talks about growing up involves the ability to use adult power responsibly. Uh, we can stand up for ourselves. We can use adult power um, to take care of ourselves, to solve problems. Uh, but we also, again, don't use that power to sort of control other people and prevent them from uh, taking care of their own needs. So as I you know, thought through this, it, it occurs to me that psychological growth sort of involves moving from a state of, uh, in, of high dependence to a state of relative independence. Uh, so just as in meeting our physical needs, I mean, we all begin by being fed by our parents and then we learn to feed ourselves, and then we learn to cook, uh, and then we can actually go out and buy our own groceries and plan meals and so forth. Similarly, uh, life you know, involves lots of things that we require uh, adults or external uh, forces to do for us that we increasingly become able to do those things for ourselves. Uh, we reach a point where we do not need uh, our, our, our mothers to come and love on us if we fall down and skin our knee, uh, we can soothe ourselves. Uh, we can feel safe even when we're not in the immediate presence of our parents. Uh, we can handle frustration. We can learn to wait for things, delay gratification. Um, we can control our own behavior. Again, you don't slap the person who stepped on your last nerve. Uh, you recognize the consequences of that and you develop the ability to control yourself. Um, you can stand up for yourself. Uh, you can make wise choices and decisions on your own behalf. Um, so as, as to, to kind of summarize all that, for me, growing up psychologically involves uh, increasingly being able to exercise power over yourself, uh, your own impulses, for example, and your own needs, uh, and for myself on behalf of my needs uh, without hurting anybody else. That's, that's sort of a summary statement. Um, Man, this is really sensitive today. Okay. Um, and so 30 years ago, as I'm reading uh, Scott Peck and just uh, devouring everything that he puts out, um, you know, it, it occurred to me uh, as I began to kind of see how he could put together psychological ideas and spiritual ideas, psychological principles and spiritual principles, and begin to mix those together. Well, it occurs to me that if I'm growing up psychologically to really do that well, I'm growing up in the direction uh, of being the person that God designed me to be. Uh, and therefore, it makes sense to me that psychological growth and spiritual growth are really quite connected. And then along comes Richard Rohr. 
now I mentioned that I, uh, I started reading um, Peck about 30 years ago, and I started reading Richard Rohr uh, maybe eight years ago, something like that. And uh, he, you know, when I, when I started to read Scott Peck, I mean, you, my experience, and I think that of many others, uh, is that I read Peck and I go, yeah, because he would articulate things that you just sort of knew, but you didn't know you know. And so a lot of people would read Peck and he would just immediately make sense to them. I pick up Richard Rohr, uh, Everything Belongs, was the first book of his that I, that I read. And I would go, what? You know, I just, yeah, it just didn't make sense. And I would get two or three chapters into that book and I'd put it down and I'd wait a while and I'd pick it back up again and put it down and wait a while. And every time I would pick it up, it would begin to make a little more sense to me. But, but Rohr would definitely call upon uh, your wineskins to stretch and your paradigms to really be challenged. Um, this book, Falling Upward, a lot of what you're going to get comes out of uh, this book. And uh, it's, it's one of the more accessible books of Richard Rohr, and I think it's one of his most useful books. Um, but don't try to read this if you're not at least in, in middle, if you, don't con if you don't consider yourself to be middle-aged or older, don't bother. You, you, uh, <laughs> seriously. Uh, so, because the, the subtitle of the book is The Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. And, and Rohr would say, you really can't see this until you reach a certain point in your life, a turning point of middle age. So, and, and <laughs> yeah, 65, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you plan to live to be 130, it'll be <laughs> 65. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, when I began to think about that question for myself, I would just double my age and I'd go, hmm. Um, how long? Yeah, lots of years ago, I, I, I'm a type 2 diabetic and have been for 20 years. And uh, long before then, I remember sitting in front of my doctor uh, and I said, well, I'm going to live to be 130. And, uh, and I really, at that point in my life, you know, 25 years ago, I didn't know why I couldn't live to be 130 other than the fact I was stupid. Um, and without missing a beat, my doctor said, well, you're gonna have to find another doctor because I'm not gonna practice that long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if I were to kind of give you an overview of uh, falling upwards, uh, it, it is that in, you know, in the first half of our life, our, our job is to build an identity, uh, to build a self. We, you know, not only do we do all this psychological growing, that we've talked about, but we begin to experience ourselves in certain ways, in different contexts, over periods of time, and we begin to sort of answer the question, who am I? Uh, and we build this sense of self. And, and Rohr is very clear, this is necessary, you can't skip this. It's not a bad thing, it's a necessary thing. But then you get to the second half of life and the task uh, sort of generally stated is to lay that self down. Uh, which Jesus, of course, calls us to do. And, and Rohr would say, you can't lay down yourself until you have one. Um, and so uh, part of what this means is that uh, just as we follow these rules, uh, we get all these rules for our life in lots of different contexts, in school and home and, and so forth, uh, it was speaking from the terms of religion, 
there are these patterns and rules and commandments that are laid out. Uh, in fact, the word religion, uh, the etymology of the word, uh, the, the, the root of that, L-I-G, in Latin, has to, it's the same root for the word ligament and litigation. It involves tying or binding. And the, the prefix R-E is an intensification of that. And so our, you know, religion is something that, that binds us and ties us in. Um, and, uh, and these rules and commandments put some limits on and structure for how we experience and express spirituality. Uh, and then just as in the first half of life, you know, we, we learn to experience ourselves, we experience ourselves in relation to God. Um, whoops, did not mean for that to happen. Um, in the second half of life, we learn to transcend those structures of formal religion. And they, by transcend, I do not mean blow up uh, or destroy. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Um, and this external, uh, these, these external rules that we follow become internalized. Or in biblical language, uh, God said, I will write their, the law on their hearts. Instead of on tablets of stone, the law will be written on our hearts. And in Christian theology, we believe that the Holy Spirit has an awful lot to do with that. And so rather than saying, well, this is the rule, I'm going to follow it through the process of Christian life, um, we increasingly allow the Spirit to lead us and to guide us. And lo and behold, we begin to look more and more like Jesus when that happens, which is the goal, not following a rigid set of rules. Uh, and then we become sufficiently secure in our relationship to God that we can willingly lay that self down. So, you know, Rohr says that this self that we build is just the container. And, uh, and it, it, you know, it's it, a lot of people, he says, if you get stuck in that first half spirituality, you, you spend the rest of your life defending that container because you think the container was the objective and it's not. Uh, the container is that which is designed to be uh, emptied so that it may be filled by what it was built for, which is, which is God. Um, and... Uh, and, and, you know, to some extent, if we become too identified with the formalities of religion, we can, you know, defending the self means also defending, you know, the way things are done. It's got to be done this way. Jesus is the model here. And so with that in mind, uh, listen to these words of Jesus, maybe uh, at a level that you haven't heard them before. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Um, I, I think it's important we emphasize sometimes in our teaching that Jesus suffered and died so that we don't have to. And I am increasingly coming to question that. We don't have to hang on a cross. We don't have to die for our sins. But I think that Jesus' death, while also a substitution, I, Jesus basically is saying, take up your cross and follow me. He's giving us a model uh, for how we are to live. Jim? Yes? I just, while you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how I experienced my faith in, say, my 30s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way that that I learned about faith and Christianity was my parents in their twenties and thirties. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that I 
I was thinking the first half of life, when I reached 40, I got no, um, like consciously less willing to take crap on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that that has had, I'm, I'm much different with the way my kids are than I was with my parents because yeah. I'm older and I'm not as interested in the structures <clears throat> of religion and the rules and much more in how I experience it. But I'm always agonizing Right. 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 Belief and understanding, but we don't. You know, we're not here. Kind of the doors that are open. Yeah. So it's just interesting that he would say that the way that you. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know you you have to go through that that stage. Everybody kind of has to follow that. So uh, there is always. Yeah. It'll all be okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know a good therapist, by the way, Katie. Oh, right. Bring your checkbook. No, <laughs> uh, uh, so spiritual spiritual growth always involves a certain falling or dying. That's sort of uh, unavoidable. Uh, and go back and read the stories of people like Jacob and Joseph and Peter and the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. I mean, what you see uh, is that all of these people had some significant failures or fallings or dying, uh, and then they come back up. Um, and, uh, and so there is this cycle of birth and death and resurrection, which is simply rebirth. Uh, and as I was thinking about that, you know, I'm thinking about Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is going, how is man going to get back into his mother's womb? And I'm thinking, well, one of the things that has to happen before you're reborn is that you have to die. Uh, we have to go through this dying. And we see this pattern in the four seasons of the year. Things are waking up again. Well, they were until Saturday. Uh, <laughs> then they've gone back to sleep a little bit, uh, kind of like me this morning. You're like, is it, what time is it really? <laughs> what time does it feel like, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, in the 24 hours of daily life, I mean, one of the things that I'm aware of is that when I go to bed, I mean, I have lots of stuff going on in my head all day long. And if I'm going to go to sleep, I have to lay that stuff down. I have to set it apart and let go of it in order to be able to, to let sleep take me. Um, Rohr says there will always be at least one situation in our life that we can't fix, control, change, or even understand. And it is through that, you know, hitting that wall, that failure, that following, that dying, that's kind of what prompts us to grow beyond those, those uh, formal structures. Um, and so think about Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. I mean, uh, I think it's in the book of Galatians. In, in Acts, it just sort of kind of keeps, the story keeps moving. But I believe in Galatians, Paul says that after he had that, you know, after Jesus slapped him off the horse and struck him blind and said, you're coming with me, um, you know, Paul sat for like three years scratching his head going, well, what's going on here? Because Paul was sure he was right because he was defending historic Judaism as he knew it. And Jesus said, guess what, Paul, you're getting it all wrong. Uh, so, you know, Jesus did all these things that challenged the formal structures at that time. Uh, and so this forces our wineskins to stretch. Um, 
And so it began to look now at the movement of spiritual growth. And I see uh, that rather than moving toward independence from dependence, we're moving back now into letting go of things, surrendering, uh, accepting that we don't have power over everything, uh, accepting mystery, things that we can't understand, walking by faith and not walking by sight. And so I began to sort of lay those things next to each other. Um, instead of uh, exercising power as we grow spiritually, we're releasing control. Uh, instead of believing in ourselves, we're now relying on God. Instead of defending ourselves, we are now laying down ourselves. And I really, I've, I've always kind of found this interesting. Uh, in, in Joshua, as Joshua is handed the mantle of power, God says to him, be strong. Be strong, Joshua, and courageous. Um, and when Paul asks for his thorn in the flesh to be removed, Jesus says, be weak, Paul. Be content in your weakness. Rely not on your own power, but rely on my power. Uh, and those are just two different places in the story. It's not that one was right and the other is wrong. Um, and so you think about this passage in Ecclesiastes where there's a time and a season for everything. It's not that one's right and one is wrong. There is a movement that goes through life. There is a time to exercise power and a time to let power go. There's a time to pick up and a time to, to let things fall. Um, and, and in that context, uh, I want to talk a little bit about just the serenity prayer, which everybody's familiar with thanks to AA. Uh, it's actually uh, written by a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Every time I think about that, I say, well, that's just everything. I mean, there's two boxes. I can put it in the box of something that I can do something about, or I can put it in the box of something I can't do something about. And if I want to drive myself crazy, I should try to control something that ultimately I can't control. Um, and, uh, and so, again, there's a time to... To, to be courageous and to change things, but there's also a time to let things go and just have the serenity to accept things. Um, and I can't do the serenity prayer without giving you all the long version of it. Uh, is, it, it how many of have never seen the long version of the serenity prayer, the full version? Okay. So, so listen to this in the context of what we talked about. Um, and, and, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, accepting one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway of peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him in the next. I love that. Um, as, as good as the first half of that prayer is, the second half is good too. And so, uh, no, I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm not trying to make you Buddhist, um, but I, I really you know, thought that the yin-yang symbol, uh, because I see this movement between the spiritual growth and the psychological growth, and they're, not, uh, they're, they're really intimately related to one another, uh, and there's time for both of them. I, you know, I, I love this little uh, graphic here, uh, which you know, kind of says the same thing about good and evil and black and white and, and life. So anyway, uh, probably have a minute or two for questions. Or have I answered all of them now? Everything is clear, right? What's the meaning of life? The writer Annie Dillard says, what you do with the day is what you do with your life. I mean, um, <laughs> it's to use the bathroom in your pants, Terry. 
<laughs> is it, uh, I've always thought people who may not even name a faith mm -hmm. as such, that they're still on a spiritual journey. Oh, yeah. Sort of innate mm -hmm. to humanity because we're image bearers of mm -hmm. God. And you think they, they don't hardly know, those who are without faith kind of get to a place in which they don't know how to go forward. And so retaining the independence seems like the goal. Yes. You know, it's like this, this is the self-actualized, to use Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. That's the place that we all pursue. But this is the, the next level up, which is to be able to release uh, self uh, into the, the bigger experience. And I had an experience a long time ago. It was a, a psychologist. I didn't know this person, but a friend of mine at the church that I was in in St. Louis uh, was a good friend of this psychologist, and she never had any faith uh, throughout all of her life, successful psychologist in private practice. But in the last days of her life, she uh, developed uh, a, a cancer that was not hopeful at all. And she asked her friend, she said, I know you're a person of faith, would you, uh, would you walk with me? I don't know what mm -hmm. to expect in the what happens at death. Mm -hmm. And so then this friend came to me and said, would you just walk with her? And I, it was such an interesting journey because what was happening in her uh, uh, near-death experience she was beginning to move into the spiritual realm like never before. She was fascinated and wanted to learn and was kind of sad that she'd never moved beyond that. But her body, she couldn't get out of bed. She, she couldn't uh, do anything. She, would, uh, uh, she had to be fed. She was completely helpless and was having to submit to death. And I thought, wow, that, that's kind of when they begin to merge a little bit more and now mm -hmm. you you move toward that mm -hmm. longing for the rebirth because death mm -hmm. is so imminent. It was just was an interesting thing in mm -hmm. light of what you taught this morning. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, in, in that context, I think about um, Bill Wilson is the guy that one of the, the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and Bill was an agnostic um, and he was a hopeless alcoholic. He tried and tried and tried and tried to stop drinking and he was unsuccessful in doing that and he was finally he was in a detox unit drying out and he he was just miserable and sort of in that helpless state that you're talking about and he finally just said okay if there's a god out there show yourself mm -hmm. and he had an experience and he became a believer after that and he and dr bob founded aa uh, but he also tried to structure the writings of aa and the beliefs of aa this whole concept of a higher power uh was conceived of as a way that people uh, who didn't, it, it basically meant that, that theism was not an, uh, a prerequisite to being that, yeah, you could, you could join, you know, and, and, but because you start where people are and then watch and see where they move, so. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Sure. As with most of our, um, with our classes, it just scratches the surface and we could do a semester. No, that was pretty complete. There's nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do summer series?